This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello? Hi, good morning. Is that Humphrey? Yeah, this is Humphrey here. Hey, Humphrey, this is Uma calling from Malaysia. Ah, good, 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 good. And the line is okay, is it? Yes, I'm just, uh, I'm just getting your levels. Uh, so okay. if you could just let me know what you had for breakfast, if you've had breakfast. Uh, no, it's too early for breakfast now, but I'll read for you from a book review I'm writing saying that China's success is not about ideology, doctrine, or politics, but about process, knowing how to set goals and conceive ideas in a practical way. That is perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganapake Pagan, and joining me on the show today is journalist and author Humphrey Hawksley to talk about his brand new book, Asian Waters The Struggle Over the Asia Pacific and the Strategy of Chinese Expansion. Hello, my name is Humphrey Hawksley. I am the author of Asian Waters, The Struggle Over the Asia-Pacific and the Strategy of Chinese Expansion. Humphrey, it is an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. I wanted to start off by talking to you about your approach in telling this story because you begin in an absolutely fascinating way. Your book opens with the story of a fisherman. And what that does is that it actually pulls me in directly into the story because it gives me a personal connection to what's going on uh, with this individual and his plight. Uh, partly it was instinctive in me because I'm a journalist by trade. Um, and when we tell a story in journalism, you, you have to give an example of the human level uh, that, that, that it takes place. So Wherever you go, whatever the politics is, you always go and knock on somebody's door and ask them how it's impacting them. In this case, particularly, the fisherman was from the Philippines, and he had been working out on a place called Scarborough Shoal, which China had moved into some years earlier, and they had water cannoned him off his boat and put their coast guards there in what was essentially Philippine territory. Uh, It was Philippine fishing rights territory. What that did was it became to me a microcosm of how China operates because he couldn't earn a living fishing. He had to, uh, his wife and and the wives of his colleagues had to take contracts as domestic helpers in Saudi Arabia. Right. Now, this was a rugged fishing village. Um, You know, they lived off the elements. They worked hard. They played hard and they were able to provide for themselves. And that took it all away. And then a deal was struck with China, probably a little bit like the deals that Malaysia is trying, new deals Malaysia is trying to strike with them now, whereby he was allowed to go and fish back there, but there was still a Chinese Coast Guard vessel at that spot. So this was an idea that what China is doing, it comes in with a whip, it tells you you can't have something, and then it says, well, okay, you can have a bit of it back, but we are still in control. And you make a point, and it's an interesting point that I think a lot of Malaysians can relate to uh, right there in the prologue when you talk about China's expansion in the region having to do a lot with the rest of the world being distracted. I mean, America with the Middle East and ASEAN, our neighbors, with their own corruption and issues to deal with. 
Yes, China's expansion has really been 10 years. Uh, the past 10 years, it's felt confident enough to sort of reach out, and it's gone into America, into Africa and Latin America and invested a lot in Europe and the, and the U.S. That was after the financial crash in 2008. But in the past five or six years, it has really been making its push into Asia by building military bases in the South China Sea, and essentially sort of claiming that uh, that maritime shipping routes and territories and so on. Now, during this time, Europe was recovering from the financial crisis of the U.S. was. Europe was being torn apart, as it still is being, fracturing with Britain leaving now and the rise of the right and whether the European project is right. And the U.S. has been going through, you know, the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, those wars, and now the election of Donald Trump. So these two balancing powers of the global order have been inward looking and China has been outward looking. Which, of course, is incredibly fascinating, especially because their approach in a lot of the countries around our region over here in Southeast Asia and also South Asia has been very has been very capitalist in nature. I mean, if we take a look at what's going on with China and Sri Lanka as well, it's a very monetary developmental approach, isn't it? To get people kind of hooked on to you, addicted to your money. Yes. I mean, it, it, this is interesting because since the end of the Cold War, I mean, a lot of people don't remember back, you know, and, and the, there's a whole new generation of people where this is dark history, as it were. But say since, since the past 25 years, the West, for want of a better word, has had a pretty blank canvas to go in and develop the developing world, right. what a better phrase. But what hasn't happened there is, uh, or at, at, at enough speed, is that the actual, the people in that, those haven't seen that development. I mean, they've been told to be democratic, they've been told to do this and gender equality and all that sort of stuff. But they haven't seen the skyscrapers go up and the bridges being built and the airports coming up and the sports stadiums coming up. And that's what China has doing so well. So you mentioned Sri Lanka. They built a huge port there uh, in Hambatota, which is, was meant to be a sort of commercial operation to build a port for Sri Lanka. But in fact, it was riddled in debt um, that the Sri Lankans can't uh, pay for. And now China essentially owns that port or Chinese companies own that port. And in Malaysia, uh, Malaysia was faced with similar prospects there that the Prime Minister Mahathir is now trying to undo. And if you take that again as a microcosm, you think right across the world, these, uh, you know, every time you see a road and an airport and a port being built up, think of the money that that country now owes to China. And then think of the power 10 or 15, 20 years from now, or the influence, economic leverage China will have over many of these countries around the world. And of course, in the Malaysian context as well, we had the added complication of dealing with corruption. And so it felt, or at least this is the case that Prime Minister Mahathir was making, was that China was taking advantage of the situation by saying, hey, we can bail you out. We can solve your problems. Yes. I mean, I mean, basically the message from China or the underwritten message to this very famous Belt and Road Initiative, where they're going to sort of modernize swathes of Asia right through to Europe with motorways and high-speed railways and all that, the, the, the underwritten thing that is that if, however weak and corrupt your government is, we can bankroll you out of it and keep you in power. But 
you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You will have to be loyal to China. So if you take the ASEAN group, for example, that, are, that, that they've got their annual summit coming up uh, next month. If you take the ASEAN group, um, Cambodia has, is basically now <clears throat> owned and indebted to China to such an extent that on something like the South China Sea claims or big sort of un united front issues, uh, it, you cannot have a signature on that because Cambodia will side with whatever China wants to do. That is happening uh, or has been happening in many other places. Sri Lanka was, uh, was one of them that you mentioned. Uh, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint every country, but the Philippines that I mentioned with the, the fishermen knows very well that it cannot be now a complete American ally that it was during the Cold War and up until now. It has to make concessions to China because if it doesn't, its economy is going to suffer. One of the interesting things um, that I found about your book, Humphrey, that I really enjoyed, and I think I don't get enough of this in my readings of op-eds and the like, is you try to tell a lot of the story through the Chinese perspective or to look at it through Chinese eyes. How important is that? I I am convinced. I, I would almost say passionate, although I hate that word. But if you if you've got a, a, a something an issue there, you need to understand the motive of the issue. Why are they doing it? So China is essentially motivated. It needs to protect its southern coastal um, belt there uh, from its trade routes being cut off. Uh, by the U.S. or by anybody that 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 it becomes an enemy to it. Uh, the reason it does that is because historically uh, those uh, coastal defences were breached in the 19th century when Britain tried to sell or, or insisted on bringing its gunboats in to sell opium into the Chinese market. Uh, that's embedded in the Chinese um, legends. It's taught in the schools. Uh, they call it the century of humiliation. Uh, so it wants to secure that uh, the, the, the South China Sea route. It also needs its supply lines uh, for oil, gas, food, and all that, whether it's in Latin America, Africa, or, 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 or wherever, needs that to be secured in order to feed its people. So what it is doing is not unlike what the United States did, for example, in the early 19th century, when it started something called the Monroe Doctrine under right. President Monroe at the time, whereby it, it, it sort of said quite categorically that no power in the Caribbean or Latin America must be more powerful than, than the United States. You know, you're, you're here because we allow you to be here. China's beginning to say the same thing in the, in the South China Sea. I'll just add a, add a point to that, Uma, is that, is that I think historically or in modern history, we haven't done enough in understanding the motives of our potential enemies. Mm -hmm. So when we look at in the Middle East at Saddam Hussein or Assad or Gaddafi in Libya, uh, we didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. And that is why those countries are now basically a sort of you know, war zone messes. But am I right in thinking that there is a bit of confusion in the rhetoric because at least I get confused with regards to what is seen as self-protection and what is seen as outright aggression? <laughs> well, if you, if, you, if you track back the, uh, what, what China is doing, you get, you get a situation whereby it starts like we need to protect our... <laughs> so it's a know, bit of both. To put a, 
it's, yes, but, but but then at some stage, it can become aggression. So take, for example, you know, China's doing something in Pakistan or Sri Lanka that, that you mentioned, and there's some problem, local problem. And uh, one of the, you know, the, the Sri Lanka could be quite a violent place. They go and attack a Chinese office or, or construction site. And then China retaliates. And then you need Chinese troops in there to protect it. And this is what happened with Britain. If you, you know, in, in India and then in Malaysia and Singapore, and, and, and in order to protect our, the rubber trade in Malaysia, for yeah. example, we would send in, in British troops to stop the insurgency or the communist insurgency or whatever was happening there in Africa. That's what colonial powers do. I was just about to say, Humphrey, um, it's really weird because it sounds almost exactly like what colonial powers do as opposed to what corporations do. Well, good point. Um, at what stage does your your colonial government, if that's the right word in today's world, and your corporations, where do they separate and where do they merge? Hmm. When you take a, the Chinese construction that's going on in various places, it's not done by the government. It's done by the Shandong Dam Building Province Society or something like that, you know. Uh, or the Huawei, which is this now, I think it's the world's biggest high-tech communications company. Uh, these, are, these are corporations that would need to be protected by the state uh, if lives are threatened. And this is what uh, you know, the U.S. has done, what Britain has done over, over the, the, uh, the, the decades and centuries. And it's what China is, is treading carefully towards getting to that situation. What we need to remember, though, is that China has achieved its influence currently uh, and the spread of its tentacles without so far a shot being fired in anger. Right. So in a way, it may be much cleverer than we were when I talk about we, I guess I'm talking about British colonialists, than we were in doing this. Uh, I think the last thing China wants is for there to be uh, a war or any sort of conflict that accompanies its Belt and Road Initiative or its building of infrastructure and influence around the world. Of course not, because, I mean, that's just terrible for business. But um, with that... <laughs> it's, it's ter- well, and, and unless you're in the, in the military-industrial yes, conflict, exactly. it's terrible for business. But with that in mind, Humphrey, I mean, uh, there's something that you don't necessarily go into in your book, and it's just something I've been curious about. When you talk about China um, as a colonial power in parallel, say, with someone like the United States, because the United States did it both ways, right? And, and you talk a little bit about this, the spreading of democracy, um, but also the spreading of soft power, which America used to win over hearts and minds. So they had all these 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 bilateral trade initiatives and, and, and intergovernmental stuff going on. But at the same time, there was this focus on the individual Malaysian or the individual Indian or Sri Lankan. But China doesn't seem to put much focus into soft power. I guess Huawei as a technology company, we're all using their phones, maybe in that way. But is that something they're looking to doing as well? Well, I mean, soft power's got many, many guises. Uh, So China's got about 500 Confucian institutes all around the world. And it spends billions of dollars a year on promoting this soft power thing, which some, you know, some uh, academics call sharp power. Right. But the other form of soft power is, say, the Hollywood movie or the baseball cap or the Nike T-shirt. 
Um, and this is the one where you go to a, you know, a, 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 a country that's sort of caught between two superpowers. And what have they got on? They've got on, you know, they they have on the Nike T-shirt. They have on the baseball cap. And they don't have on a sort of Guangzhou or Beijing uh, Tiananmen Square T-shirt. Right. Um, and, and, and so that is, a, you know, that is another form of soft power. I think the, I think essentially it boils down to when you talk to an American, they're generally friendly. Where are you from? How are you doing? You know, do you want a burger? Um, <laughs> you talk to a Chinese and it's, it's, it's a little stiffer, isn't it? I, I chalk that up to China being closed off from the rest of the world for so long. Well, up to a point, but I think there's another thing that's come in here it, again, in the last five or six years since President Xi Jinping came to power, and that is the the return to the surveillance state, um, one-party state doctrine that is clamping down on free speech, interfering with the internet, photographing everybody as they walk along the streets and that thing. And I think that is making citizens, uh, Chinese citizens, a little wary um, as to what they say and how they speak and how they act. Up until, say, he came to power five five years ago, there was this gradual opening up, this idea that, um, you know, the more wealthy people got, the bigger the pact would be with government and citizen and the more freedoms would come about. And clearly there's been a decision made at the top, not just by him, that China mustn't move too quickly and we must clamp down again. So therefore, I think when you uh, when the various stories come out, for example, like to, you know, the, the moment there's a story about these these camps in Xinjiang province re-educating the Muslim population to make sure they're not extremists. When these things sort of come out, people are reluctant to uh, embrace, uh, sort of embrace with their their hearts. I would say that type of culture, whereby the American culture, where they can essentially say what they want, they can dream of driving a fast car, going to Hollywood and all that sort of thing, is easily embraceable. It feels a lot more fun. It, a lot more fun. I think, I mean, just to say the, um, the, the, the fishing story that, that, you, that you mentioned, uh, the, um, uh, the, when, when there was conciliation with that village and they were allowed back, a Chinese official actually arrived in the village and he offered to take some of the fishermen to China to show them how modern fisheries would would go. So they went there and they did the bullet trains and they went to the Great Hall of the People and they were talked to and they were shown sort of very modern fishing uh, equipment and, and computers and everything. And they were given uh, they were given these little trinkets, like I think they were given a thing of Mao and, and Tiananmen Square and all the rest of it. And when I went to see the head of the association in this village, uh, he still had he had the Statue of Liberty in Brooklyn Bridge up on his wall. I said, "When are you <laughs> going to put these um, these these other trinkets?" So I said, "Did you do you have any other trinkets?" And he said, "Well, he smiled, sort of embarrassed, and opened his drawer, and they were all sitting there." I said, "When are they going up on your wall?" <laughs> and he said, "I don't think I'm quite ready yet. I don't quite understand the Chinese." <laughs> and I think that's it, right? And I think that is the true reflection of soft power that you want to go out and buy yourself a poster of the Statue of Liberty or JFK or Ghostbusters or something of the like, as opposed to a propaganda trip in which people give you souvenirs. 
exactly. I, I think I think it's and in, and and you know it's not ideological because I mean how many T-shirts do we see with Che Guevara on? It, Correct. Uh, for example, it's more a sort of branded fashion statement. Exactly, it? it's something you know, that looks what cool. Cool people are wearing during the Obama years. The president actually came to Malaysia twice. He was the first U.S. president to come to Malaysia since LBJ in 1966. Because, you know, we've been, I mean, we're on the map, but we're not really on the map for the Americans. And for me, that was, I mean, he was so hell-bent on that pivot to Asia that he was visiting everyone. But with Donald Trump, is this pivot to Asia all but dead? I, well, it's obviously different. I think that the pivot to Asia is there with Donald Trump. I mean, it, it, the pivot to Asia was missold, as, as, as you must be aware, whereby, although it was a very complex thing about trade, diplomacy, the soft power and, and military, uh, it, it became just, you know, the America's going to be sending more warships to the Asia-Pacific to stop China. Yeah. That was the narrative. Yeah. What Trump is doing, I think, is fascinating. Um, whether it's good or bad for for the U.S. or for the region, I have no idea. But he's he's busting through every protocol about Asian diplomacy, pretty much, that was ever written. So he took the call from President Chai of Taiwan even before he became president. Uh, then that broke through the one China policy thing, which he questioned. And he said, what is this one China policy for? He then, the next week or so, he says, well, why don't we bomb North Korea? When everybody that in my career has said, we can't possibly do that because Japan will get struck and Seoul will be destroyed. He then sends more warships to the South China Sea. And a couple of weeks ago, Vice President Mike Pence, obviously under Trump's, you know, the, the instructions also, basically called China out for being a pariah state, um, you know, a surveillance state that repressed its people, that was stealing American technology and all the rest of it. What he's doing, I think, with this is he's making Asia understand that it has to look after itself. So although you've got American warships and you've got that, that the Asian countries, that is, Japan, uh, China, and India are the big ones, but you've got Malaysia, uh, now with, President, with Prime Minister Mahathir back, and Singapore. These are the intellectual voices of Southeast Asia, as they were 20 years ago when Lee Kuan Yew and Prime Minister Mahathir were working together on pushing the Asian tiger thing forward. Uh, I have a feeling that over the next five years or so, during the Trump presidency, we will see more cohesion within Asia and less direct American um, intervention there uh, because Trump has to withdraw, you know, American, you know, his, his manifesto is to withdraw that. And if Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, does not want to get caught between two superpowers again in a Cold War situation, they're going to have to bury all their differences and become a unified and strong front. And Southeast ASEAN can do that if it had the will to do it. And then you can say, they can say to, to the US or to China, no, you don't do it like this, you do it in our Asian way. So far, that hasn't been successful. And it might be a pipe dream, but it's the only way to stop Malaysia, Singapore again having to choose in a Cold War whether they back China or whether they back the United States. 
They call it a cold war. I, I'm sitting in London, and I can call that a cold war. <laughs> But in Asia, this was a very hot war. You had Vietnam, you had Korea, you had、uh, the insurgency in Malaysia, the confrontation in Indonesia. This was a hot war,、um, <laughs> and I don't think Southeast Asia wants to go through it again. No, I don't think we do,、um, Humphrey. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for your time. It's been great to be on. I've been speaking today to Humphrey Hawksley. His new book is called *Asian Waters: The Struggle Over the Asia Pacific and the Strategy of Chinese Expansion*. It is, of course, available at all good bookstores. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm. my or find us on iTunes. BFM eighty nine point nine, the business station.